Good morning. It is truly a joy uh, and a blessing that God's given us this opportunity to be together. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot lately uh, about Paul's instructions to Timothy uh, as an evangelist and the, the epistles of First and Second Timothy. Um, as I've thought about my work as an evangelist, I, I think th- those books are, are very instructive, very helpful uh, in giving us kind of a, a pattern or picture of what the work of an evangelist should look like, what, what kind of things I should be focusing on, uh, what kind of things I, I should be working on, uh, what kind of needs or dangers I should be addressing or giving attention to. And, and one thing that has stood out to me and looking at First and Second Timothy is how much Paul warns Timothy against the dangers of, of false teaching, or as the New American Standard renders it here in First Timothy 1, strange doctrines. Um, and, and that's challenging to me uh, because I, I've generally tried to not get too wrapped up in, in pointing fingers at other people, you know, at... at um, focusing on all the errors of the religious world uh, around me. Uh, I've tried to focus primarily on approaching God's word as a mirror, uh, not as a, a microscope or, or, or a magnifying glass directed towards anyone else. And I've tried to focus on uh, what, what I like to think of as building a lighthouse instead of cursing the darkness ar- around us. Um, and I think there's some good in that, right? That, that God does want us to be focusing not simply on error, but on truth. God wants us to be shining the light. Um, but if, if that means that we ignore talking about error and we ignore the danger of, of false doctrine, then uh, that's not good either. That's not healthy. Um, in fact, that's not biblical. Uh, and so I... I I decided to do a quick survey through the New Testament and and try to get a biblical perspective. When when the Bible talks about false doctrine, what is it talking about? Um, And how should I think about that? Biblically, how should I think about that? How should I talk about that? And so I started going through, starting in Matthew, all the way to Revelation, and I just started writing down different verses that... that, uh, said something about some false teaching, some error, some, some deceiving influence. Um, and I filled up one side of a note card and I flipped it over and I filled the other side and I had to get another note card and started writing. And then I had to flip it over and fill the other side. And by the time I was done, I had 62 different references in the new Testament in one way or another. And, and, you know, you could probably have a different count than I, I would, uh, if you did that yourself. Uh, And I found, from my count, that 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament talk in some way about false prophets, false teaching, false doctrine, uh, or or other deceiving uh, teachings uh, and influences. Uh, The the only books that I didn't find a clear reference in were the Gospel of of John, Philemon, James, and 1 Peter. And I can almost guarantee you, you could probably find some references in those books that, that you would think would at least apply uh, to this idea of, of false teaching. Um, and so what, what I want to do uh, in the next uh, two, two uh, maybe three lessons um, that, that I have is, is consider what the Bible says about false doctrine. What is it, biblically speaking? When we talk about false doctrine, what, what are we talking about? How should we view it? How should we handle it? How should we not handle it? Um, we, we talked two weeks ago about the, the core tactics behind Satan's lies. This, this really goes all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden, um, that uh, a good lie has some truth to it. Uh, it's told with confidence. It plays to our desires. Uh, but I hope we can take some of those concepts that go all the way back to the garden and apply them now to the realm of doctrine uh, and teaching as we look in the New Testament. So I, I want to start just with the very simple question, what, what is false doctrine? We, we ask the question, is it that big of a deal? I think we can see by how much the New Testament talks about it that, yes, it is probably a big deal. Um, but what is it? What are we talking about? What comes to your mind when you hear the word false doctrine? And is it what the Bible is talking about when it uses that phrase? Um, 
I think we see two big categories uh, of false doctrine. Uh, one is false prophets who claim to speak from God, claim to have some, some revelation from the Spirit. Uh, and this would apply to anyone today that, that claims to uh, have some authority on, on equal or coordinate plane with the Scripture. Right? Um, so the, the Catholic Church that claims to have authority within itself to, to direct people in their service to God. Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, uh, the Watchtower Society with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian Scientists, uh, and any variety of Pentecostal groups that believe the Holy Spirit is continuing to guide their church leadership into new revelation today. Um, so whenever we encounter um, some teaching and it's claiming to have some authority, some revelation uh, on equal plane or coordinate uh, with the scriptures. This is the first question we need to, to address um, is, is this truly from God? Matthew 7, uh, starting verse 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So there will be many we need to have our eyes open. We need to be aware that there will be those who are false prophets who claim to speak from the Lord, uh, who present themselves as sheep uh, in God's flock. But we're commanded to examine the fruit of their teaching and their practice to see whether or not it is consistent with what we know to be the seed of God's word. Matthew 24 and verse 11, in talking about the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem in particular, it says, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So this isn't just some, you know, isolated, rare occurrence. Jesus says, many are going to arise as false prophets and they will lead many astray. Uh, it is something we should fully expect will happen and be prepared to encounter. First John chapter four and verse one says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not, not a few, many false prophets. Many will claim to speak from the spirit. And so we're told to test the spirits. I think sometimes when we approach claims to divine revelation with, with questioning uh, and with uh, maybe a healthy measure of caution and skepticism, uh, we might be labeled as just lacking faith, right? Um, and we're, we're just people with hardened hearts and blinded eyes. But, but that, that's not necessarily the case at all. God has told us very clearly that we need to be careful about who we accept as truly speaking from him. Um, and so when we question and we, we seek proof to make sure that we know that somebody is actually speaking from God, that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. Um, and so if, if we encounter somebody who claims to have some authority beyond the scriptures, this is really where we need to start. And, and the burden of proof uh, falls to those who claim to be speaking from God. Uh, if, if you find yourself studying with somebody who is appealing to some other authority beyond the word of God, square one, the first question we need to ask is how do you know that that authority is from God? Um, and, and it's not up to me to prove that it isn't. It's up to them to prove that it is, right? What evidence do you have to show that this authority is truly from the Lord? Uh, because if I'm going to accept it, God tells me I need to test that. Well, how exactly do we test the spirits? I, I talked about this uh, not too long ago when we, we uh, talked about the, the Holy Spirit in a series of lessons. But, but I want to quickly review these ideas again. First of all, we have what we might call the miraculous test. Even all the way in the Old Testament, we're warned against false prophets. And in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 20, Moses tells the Israelites, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not, uh, that is the thing that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. First of all, do you notice how serious God treats this? He says, if somebody speaks presumptuously and claims to be speaking for me and isn't, that person shall die. That's how serious God treated this. Um, and so this is not something we should take lightly. Um, 
we need to make sure if we're claiming to speak for the Lord, that that's a pretty serious claim. That better be true. Um, but he tells us, well, how, how will we know whether or not somebody is speaking from the Lord? And one test that they're given here is if they say that something is going to happen and it doesn't happen, then that's not the Lord, right? Um, if, if they can prophesy and foretell what's going to happen and it comes true, they're, they're reflecting a foreknowledge that only God, who is outside time and space, has um, then that may be evidence that they are, in fact, from the Lord. They're, they're reflecting some power, some insight, some knowledge that's beyond simply human knowledge and, and power. Um, and so on a very basic level, uh, if they reflect the Spirit's power, we, we see this in John 10, verse 37 and 38. Jesus says of himself, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Later at the end of the Gospel of John, it says these miracles, these signs were recorded that we may believe. Um, and so Jesus doing works that only the power of the Father could truly accomplish, witness to his authority uh, that he claimed um, truly to be speaking from the Lord. Uh, and Jesus did not expect blind acceptance of his message. He expected his hearers to weigh the evidence, to see that his works were not just that of a mere man, but demonstrations of the power of God. And so one test, this isn't the only test, but one test is, do they reflect divine power, right? Um, that, that was the function of the miraculous signs was to indicate that the teaching was in fact from the Lord. But that's not the only test. In fact, in Matthew 24 and in 2 Thessalonians 2, we're told that there would be some prophets who would demonstrate deceptive signs and lying wonders in an effort to lead people away from the Lord. So this alone isn't the only test we're given, even in the Old Testament uh, actually, the first test that we're given, we might call the doctrinal test. Look back in De Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13, this one is actually mentioned earlier in Deuteronomy in verse 1 through 3. Uh, here we read, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Here, even more foundational than the presence of signs and wonders was discernment about the message itself. Was this a God-honoring message? Was it consistent with what God had already revealed and commanded to them? Was it drawing them closer to the Lord? Or was it actually drawing them farther away from what God had revealed about himself and his will? Uh, we see this in the New Testament as well, Galatians 1 verse 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And, and so, yes, uh, there needs to be some evidence, some, some proof uh, that this is, in fact, the working of God. But, but that's not the only test. We also need to compare it with the seed, compare it with what we know from the Lord. Uh, and if it's guiding us away from that, then that's not the Lord. God does not contradict himself. He doesn't change his mind on a whim, teaching one thing one day and something different the next. Uh, we need to go back to what we know to be true from the Lord. Compare that seed with the fruit of anyone who claims to be speaking for the Lord. Um, if their fruit is clearly in conflict with what God has already revealed in his word, then they're a false prophet. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so th this is one area um, if that we need to be discerning about those who claim to speak with some authority beyond that of, of the scriptures. And we need to be discerning about that. We need to test um, based on what we know God has revealed about himself uh, and based on whether or not they are showing any proof for their claim to be speaking from the Lord. But, but I want to spend a good deal of our time focusing in another area. Um, not only are we warned against false prophets who claim to speak from the Lord, but we're warned against false teachers 
who would distort the word of God. Um, these are not people who, who claim to have some additional revelation, but those who are mishandling, twisting, and distorting the words that God has revealed within the scriptures. Turn your Bibles with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. And, and look in verse 1 and 2. Uh, here, Peter writing near the end of his life, near the, the closing of the, the New Testament revelation, says in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who were secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Just like false prophets, uh, this isn't just some isolated, rare threat. He says many will uh, arise, and many will be led astray. But here, it seems that Peter, to the audience he's writing to, anticipates a, a greater prevalence or danger of false teachers rather than simply false prophets. He says false prophets was, was a bigger danger in the past. You're, you're going to be dealing with a lot of false teachers, those who aren't necessarily claiming to speak from the Lord, but who are twisting the things that God has said. We, we see this later in 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 15. Peter writes, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And so here we see what those false teachers are doing. They're taking things, maybe in particular, things that are difficult to understand, um, and using that as an opportunity to, to twist and distort people's understanding um, and to destabilize people's souls by complicating, confusing, and corrupting the firm foundation of God's word. And we're told to be on guard against that. Be steadfast, uh, growing more and more firmly rooted in our knowledge and relationship with the Lord day by day that we might not be led astray by that. Well, what kind of things exactly is the New Testament talking about when it talks about false teaching, false doctrine? Uh, I, I want you to think for a moment in your own mind, when you hear the word false doctrine, what comes to mind? If, if, you, if you were to kind of identify some things that you can think of in the religious world that you would identify as false doctrine. And, and I want to challenge you to think, does that fit with what the Bible is talking about when it talks about false doctrine? So what, what I want us to do is, is to just do kind of a high-level overview of all the passages in the epistles where Christians are warned against some form of false teaching. Uh, and we'll see them falling into two primary categories. Uh, binding where God has not bound and loosing where God has bound. Okay, so let, let's first focus on this area of binding where God has not bound. We're going to move rather quickly through a lot of these passages, but I want you to see some consistent ideas and some consistent themes here. Here, this is creating restrictions, drawing lines that God has not drawn. Um, first of all, we see this in the book of Galatians in binding circumcision. Remember in Galatians 1, we talked about those who are bringing in a different gospel. Uh, it says there in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. It talks about them disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, what how were they distorting the gospel of Christ? What was this different gospel that Paul is referring to? Paul in Galatians 1 goes on to talk about the gospel that he preached and emphasized that it did not come from man. Uh, it had no human origin. It was from the Lord directly. And he talks about in Galatians 2 how he eventually did go visit Jerusalem and some of the church leaders, the apostles there. Look what he says in Galatians 2, starting in verse 3. It says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren 
secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Here we, we see what this false gospel is that Paul is referring to. There, there were those who were trying to bring them back into bondage to the old law, to circumcision. Um, he calls them false brethren. Here are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? Who, who are trying to draw lines that God has not drawn under the new covenant to say that one had to be circumcised in order to experience the cleansing power of the gospel. We see this later in Galatians 6, referred to again. Galatians 6, verse 12 and 13, he says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So here are Jews, perhaps in part because of the pressure of the Jewish world around them and the persecution that they would receive by by straying from these these practices of Judaism in the past, um, who are requiring and binding circumcision upon the Gentiles uh, and focusing on these fleshly things, boasting in those fleshly things, um, rather than uh, finding that in the, the sanctification of the, the spirit uh, and the cleansing of Jesus's blood. Um, and so this is a fleshly and boastful mindset that took pride in binding where God had not bound and drawing lines that God had not drawn. We see the same issue uh, arising in the book of Philippians. Philippians 3 um, makes just kind of passing reference to this. He says in verse 1, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship this uh, in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So once again, Paul is warning against those who insisted upon the physical fleshly act of circumcision instead of being sealed and sanctified by the spirit. He's saying that's not the true circumcision. The the true circumcision under the new covenant is something that's happening spiritually in your heart, uh, not within the flesh. Uh, We see it similar to this book of Colossians. Colossians 2 kind of expands this idea a little bit further for us. Uh, Let's read Colossians 2 verse 16 and 17. Paul says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, He says in verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Skip down with me to verse 20. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you uh, submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so once again, not only circumcision, but a lot of other things that went along with it, uh, the keeping of the Sabbath, certain food laws and other restrictions, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Here they're drawing lines and binding commandments and requirements that God was not binding upon them under the new law. Uh, He calls these commandments of men. This is self-made religion. You see where the origin is here. Uh, men drawing lines because that has an appearance of wisdom. That has an appearance of of piety and and religiosity. Um, And so here, in order to to boast and take pride in that, uh, they're rather than building their foundation on God's word, uh, coming up with their own self-made commandments, uh, restrictions uh, that God had not made. Along with that, 1 Timothy chapter 4 Verse 1 through 3. First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 
So once again, drawing lines that God has not drawn, forbidding and abstaining from things that God has declared to be good and pure and glorifying to him, forbidding marriage and certain types of foods. Um, and once we get to the book of Titus, uh, Titus 1, after uh, Paul finished his talking to Titus about the qualification for uh, shepherds, for elders, he says in verse 9 regarding elders uh, that they are to be those who are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Look in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Well, what, what exactly does he say about those of the, the circumcision here? Look down at verse 13 and 14. It says, this testimony is true for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And so once again, uh, there, there are many different dangers and false doctrines that, that a shepherd needs to be prepared to answer. But he says, especially those of the circumcision, at least in this situation, uh, he says, because there are many in your area that are advocating commandments of men. Um, and evidently they're basing some of those commandments and restrictions uh, based on, he says, Jewish myths, um, stories and, and legends of their Jewish culture that they are, are using to, to bind some of these ideas uh, upon other people, uh, but it's not coming from the word of God. We can see this again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, um, as he's written to these brethren not to go back into Judaism. Notice what he says in Hebrews 13, starting in verse nine, he says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the priest, high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So he talks there about strange and varied teachings. And evidently they have something here to do with the, the food laws, the sacrificial practices, the tabernacle worship, uh, the priesthood intercession, the holy sites of, of the Jewish people. And so all of those were a shadow and the substance was Christ. Don't go back to those things. Go outside the camp, go to Jesus where he suffered. Um, in revelation, revelation two, uh, in revelation three, talking, uh, in revelation two, verse nine to the church in Smyrna, he talks about those, um, he, he knows the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Um, this may again be similar to what he said about the false circumcision, those who claim to be God's people based on maybe their Jewish heritage, but he says they're a synagogue of Satan. They're, they're not God's true people. Uh, he repeats a similar idea in revelation three and verse nine to the church in Philadelphia and may imply there as he's giving them an open door that this synagogue of Satan was trying to shut the door against the Gentiles and not allow them to come in unless they were willing to, to bind upon themselves all, all the restrictions and guidelines of the old law. And so you can see consistently time and time and time again, we're warned against this danger of enforcing commands and restrictions and drawing lines that God has not drawn. Binding where God has not bound. Um, at least here, we've seen seven different epistles, perhaps more, um, that all focus in this area. But binding where God has not bound was not the only type of false teaching we're warned against. Uh, as much as we've just seen that, we're not done. Uh, we also see uh, a warning against loosing where God has bound. Uh, and this manifests itself in many different ways. One of the first ways that, that we see as we read through our New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, Paul writes to the, the church in Corinth here, he says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
So here there, there are those proclaiming and teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. Well, Paul, is that really that big a deal? You know, it, it's just a belief about what's going to happen once we die, right? It's just a belief about what's going to happen in the end times. It's not going to impact our service to Jesus that much in the here and now, right? If we don't believe in this coming resurrection. Paul says, no, it's a huge deal. Uh, It undercuts the gospel itself. It undercuts the resurrection of Jesus and it will do significant damage to your service to Christ. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. Look what he goes on to say in verse 32. Let's read verse 32 through 34. It says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Do you see what he's saying there? Uh, he, he's saying, if there is no resurrection, well, you only live once, right? YOLO. Uh, we, we might as well live it up. Eat and drink for, for tomorrow you die. He says, no, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I think many times when I've heard that phrase in the past, bad company corrupts good morals, I, I, I kind of immediately start applying it to thinking about, well, you know, I don't want to associate with, with people who, who smoke and drink and do drugs and speak bad language and tell crude jokes. There, there's some truth to that. But do you know what the context is in 1 Corinthians 15 when he makes that statement? False teaching. Bad company, corrupt. It, it's going to corrupt the way that we think if we take part in and accept the, this, this false idea. Um, And he tells them there in verse 34, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. This idea that there wasn't a coming resurrection was causing them to take a more lax and loose approach to to their service to the Lord. He says, be sober-minded. I think we see here ideas have consequences. Right? I may think, well, well, th- this is just some little I- idea here. It's not going to have that big of an impact. Paul says, no, it has a huge impact. And when it's a false idea, <coughs> however small that may seem initially, it can have deadly consequences if we allow those ideas to corrupt our hearts, to skew our thinking and perspective of our Lord and our service to him. Uh, and we see the same type of problem elsewhere. Look in the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 5. Here are those who were denying God's wrath upon immorality. Uh, And Ephesians 5, let's start reading in verse 5 here. He says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so you see here, what, what kind of deception or empty words is he warning them against? Well, evidently there are those who are saying that God's wrath won't actually come down upon immorality and impurity. It's not really that big of a deal. You know, the, the, this fire and brimstone picture of God that, that's really just, that, that's, that's a, a false idea. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, you know, a a heaven and hell issue. God's not really going to send people to hell for, for living it up a little. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't dismiss the wrath of God. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Don't mess around with immorality. Stay far away from the darkness. Walk in the light. And so by undermining uh, and, and kind of dismissing the wrath of God or the judgment of God uh, is loosing things and encouraging a looser and more lax approach to righteous living from day to day. Uh, we're going to continue to see a similar theme here. In 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, there are those who were saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Look in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. It says, now we request uh, you, brethren, um, 
with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So evidently there are those who are claiming to speak from the Lord, maybe claiming uh, to write a letter that was actually coming from the apostles that was saying the day of the Lord had already come. Well, what, what, what was the issue with that. Paul goes on in this section to talk a lot about the, the man of lawlessness who would come with powers and signs and false wonders before the day of the Lord. Uh, and I'm not sure I fully understand all of that. I'm not going to get into that here. But but we do see once he gets down to verse 12, um, he talks about those who uh, would be judged because they didn't believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And I think maybe the core issue here is that these false teachers were shaking the resolve of these Christians by convincing them that they weren't facing a, a marathon. They were facing a short sprint, right? Um, and it was weakening them uh, and causing them to be susceptible to the passing pleasures of wickedness instead of continuing to run the race before them with endurance. Uh, and so by this false teaching about God's judgment, they, they were robbing them of their strength and encouraging them to, to give way rather to the passing pleasures of sin. We see a similar idea in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2. Um, 2 Timothy 2, we'll start reading in verse 15. You may be familiar with verse 15. It says, be diligent to present yourself proved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So he describes this as gangrene, as something that, that was causing great damage to uh, the, the brethren, something that they needed to avoid. But but what was the teaching that he describes? He says there were those who were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. I think that's very similar to what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, where they said there was no resurrection. Here they're saying, okay, well, there is some sort of resurrection, but it's actually already happened. Well, what, what does that do? Um, here, if our hope is behind us instead of ahead of us, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, Right? If our finish line is behind us instead of ahead of us, then why continue to run the race with endurance? No wonder this was a gangrene upsetting people's faith. Um, and so again, ideas have consequences. And here, this idea that the resurrection was something in the past, what was causing a, a corrupting influence uh, upon the brother that Paul uh, is, is concerned about here in this letter. But we continue to see this idea. Second Peter that we referred to earlier uh, is one of the books that addresses false teachers most extensively. Um, we already read there back in verse 1 that just as there were false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Well, what exactly were those destructive heresies that he's referring to? Uh, he has quite a lengthy description throughout all of chapter 2 here, but I want to notice a few things that he says. He says in verse 10, of chapter two. Um, he says, talking about the day of judgment will come, especially on those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Skip down with me a little bit further. Look in verse 18 and 19. 18, he says, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the one who lives in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So here they're promising freedom, uh, that it's, it's okay to, to you know, let your flesh do what it wants to do. It's okay to en engage in fleshly lust. And, and the way that they're doing this is by despising authority, right? You know, people that, that talk about the, the authority of God and, you know, say that, that he wants us to do this and he wants to do that, 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 that's just kind of childish. 
You know, um, we, we've kind of moved beyond that. We have freedom and, and we're able to, to do these things. You know, we can trust our hearts. We can do, I, I don't know exactly what the people are saying here, but, but it's something that is undermining the idea of respecting the authority of God in such a way that is giving way to, to what they call freedom, which is actually being enslaved to the flesh, right? Um, and as we read further in chapter three, this might have something again to do with denying the judgment of God. He says in verse three and four of chapter three, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You know, this idea that there's a coming judgment, that, that God's going to come in and, and you know, he, he's going to separate the, the, the goats and the sheep and that he's going to send some to eternal punishment. You know, that, that, that's not really uh, something that we need to be concerned about. Uh, you know, we, we, we know better than that. We, we've seen the world, how the world works. It just keeps turning. You know, we, we don't need to worry about this coming judgment. They're, they're mocking the idea of God's judgment, uh, which then is, is leading towards this, this loose uh, approach towards righteousness, towards our service to the Lord. Um, we continue to see these type of ideas in the book of 1 John, uh, what we might call proto-Gnosticism. I'll, I'll explain that here in just a moment. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 26, John says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. You know, the entire book of 1 John, to some extent, one of the things that he's addressing is false teaching, right? Uh, that's part of the reason that he's writing these things. Well, what, what exactly were these people trying to deceive them about? Look in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul says, little cho- uh, John says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Here there are people who evidently are trying to claim that you can be righteous without pursuing righteous living, right? That you don't have to practice righteousness. You don't have to live righteousness. You know, don't, don't worry about that, but you can still be righteous. Now, if, if we read further, we might get some insight into why or, or how they were teaching that. In 1 John 4, verse 1 through 3, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. And so evidently there are those who are denying that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, the idea of Gnosticism uh, was much more well-developed later in history. But, but even at this stage, it seems that these may be what we might call some proto or pre-Gnostic ideas. And the idea of Gnosticism is that the flesh and the spirit were diametrically opposed to one another. They're completely separate. The flesh was 100% bad and the spirit was 100% good. And so the idea of Jesus coming in the flesh, well, you know, God, God can't take on flesh. Flesh, 100% bad. Obviously, he couldn't come in the flesh. Uh, and so what that ends up uh, teaching is that, you know, your, your flesh is always going to be your flesh. Your flesh is always going to be bad. It's always going to be evil. And so you might as well just kind of let the flesh be the flesh. Let the flesh do its thing. And as long as your spirit has kind of ascended to this higher realm of, of knowledge uh, and, and purity, you know, your spirit isn't affected by the things that your flesh engages in from day to day. Um, and so... You can be righteous, but you don't have to practice righteousness. You can live however your flesh wants to live. We, we see the same idea in 2 John verse 7. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So once again, finding some creative way to say you don't actually have to live the way that God wants you to live. Right? Loosing where God has bound. Um, and that may come from a lot of different ideas. 
in different uh, ways, but, but the core problem is encouraging this more lax and freeing approach to God's will and God's word. Uh, we're going to look at two other examples here. Jude, uh, very similar to Second Peter in a lot of ways, um, addresses uh, very directly some false teaching going on. He says uh, in verse 4, um, Verse four, he says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So here, these false teachers have taken something good and wonderful and powerful, the grace of God, and they've turned it into Something that says you can live however you want to live. Uh, giving license. Instead of encouraging us to a deeper righteousness and holiness and gratitude to the Lord and serving him, uh, they've said, well, God's, God's grace has it covered. Um, and so they undermine the very lordship of Jesus in our lives. Uh, we, we don't have to fear the Lord. We don't have to serve him. We don't have to depart from evil. Well, because of grace. Again, taking something good and corrupting it. Uh, Jude has a whole lot more to say about that, but I want you to notice at least verse 16. Verse 16, he says, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Do you, do you notice that they're grumblers and fault finders? <laughs> um, you know, uh, these people are discontent and dissatisfied with those that wish to respect God's will and authority in their lives. But they'll flatter and build up those who align with their own desires. Or earlier in verse 11, he described these people as being similar to Korah's rebellion in the days of Moses or, or Cain in contrast to Abel. You know, these are people who, who, who look at Moses and say, well, Moses is the problem. You know, Korah and, and his buddies, they got it figured out. Uh, you know, or, or, or uh, Abel, he's the problem. You know, uh, and, and so here, uh, undermining the, the, the authority and righteousness, um, the life that God wants us to live, uh, and rather being discontented with, with abiding by God's will in our lives um, and, and seeking to turn God's grace into license. Uh, lastly, uh, on this point, Re Revelation 2, you have the, uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In Revelation 2, verse 14 and 15 in the church in Pergamum, says, But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And uh, the church in Thyatira, a very similar error, error is described as uh, coming from the woman Jezebel, who they were tolerating. Um, and so... I don't know exactly what the nature of this teaching was, but in one way or another, it was encouraging them to compromise with idolatry and sexual immorality. You know, maybe it's this idea that you, you, you can participate in those things of the culture around you as long as you know in your heart that you're really not serving an idol, you're serving the Lord. Um, and so they would engage in these practices. Um, so this may be uh, even similar to the proto-Gnosticism that we had uh, addressed in 1 John. Do you see how many times the Bible talks about false teaching? Um, just about every epistle <laughs> uh, uh, talks about this, this warning. And so if, if we never talk about the danger of false teaching, then, then we're just not being biblical. Um, we, we need to make sure that we're talking about things in biblical ways. And this falls into two clear categories. Um, binding where God has not bound and loosing where God has bound. And I want to ask you a question as we seek to make some application here in closing. Would you rather err on the side of binding where God has not bound or loosing where he has bound? Now you may see where I'm going with this already, but, but I want you to try to answer that question honestly. Which one are you more afraid of? Uh, which one do you see as, as worse? as a more serious danger.
I think we need to recognize that the heart God desires of us doesn't emphasize one over the other. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 in verse 2, God said, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Well, well but which one is worse, God? A- adding to it or, or taking from it? Don't do either, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 I get it. But, but, but if I was going to do one, like wh- which one would you be more displeased with? No, that, that's not how it works, right? No, we, don't do either of those. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. Your, your goal is not to lean one direction or the other. Your goal is to do what I said, right? Deuteronomy 5, verse 32, God says, So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or the left. Which, wor- which is worse? Turning to the right or the left? doesn't matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter. Our goal is to, is to follow God's will and God's word. It's not that, that one area of, of choosing and having the heart that would depart from the Lord is, is somehow worse. You know, if you're going to fall out of a boat, would you rather fall out of the right side or the left side? It doesn't matter. And, and if you start thinking, well, that left side, you know, that's a lot worse. What are you, what's going to happen? You're going to fall out the right side. Proverbs 17 and verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. God doesn't emphasize one over the other. You know, both of those lists that we looked at were pretty long lists, right? It's not that one was clearly the bigger problem. Now, there, there may be, remember when Paul wrote to Titus, He said, you need to be careful, especially about those of the circumcision. In the situation that Titus was in, there there may have been a bigger danger in in that culture, in that environment, from that side. He doesn't say, don't worry about the other side. He says that this might be the bigger danger that you're facing. So I think it's legitimate. We might recognize in our own hearts or in the people around us that that I think we might be more prone to, to fall this way. Let's be cautious about that, right? But it's not that, that we should seek to err on one side instead of the other, right? Jesus didn't err on one side or the other, right? <laughs> uh, Jesus didn't lean towards erring on one side or the other. We need to have the kind of heart that is just focused on doing the will of the Lord. So let's not bind where God is not bound. Let's not loose where God is bound. Let, let's, let's do exactly what God said. Let let that be our focus. Let that be our God. That's the kind of heart that God wants us to have. I hope this has been helpful. I recognize this is a lot of information, uh, but hopefully it's helpful to you to see when the Bible talks about false teaching, and it talks about it a lot, what what is it talking about? Um, And I hope in some later lessons to talk about, well, where does that come from? And how do we guard against that? What's the solution? Uh, we'll, we'll try to address that more in the future. But maybe you recognize that, that you have been leaning in one direction or the other, that, that maybe you've, you've fallen out of, of God's will for your life because you think, well, that's the bigger danger over there. Uh, won't, won't, won't you recenter your focus on simply following the truth of God's word? Um, let's recenter our focus on not what is the bigger danger, but, but walking in the way that Jesus has revealed to us, um, listening to exactly what God has said and letting that be the foundation on which we're building. Uh, if you recognize that there's some change that you need to make in your heart and your life today, won't you make it? Won't you make it right now? If it's of a public nature and you need to ask for the prayers of these brethren, you need to confess it before these brethren, we want to give you that opportunity. And if you need to come to the Lord for the first time, surrendering your life to him, we always want uh, to, to give you that opportunity. If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, won't, won't you make that known at this time as we stand and sing together?